I got a little head cold thing. I'm going to try my best not to sniffle or cough on you uh, too much this morning. But today we get to wrap up our mini-series that we've been doing called Foundations. And today we're going to look specifically at the topic of culture. Now, I know that we've packed a lot in over the last three weeks. I think we've packed probably eight weeks of content into these three weeks. You're welcome. Um, we're going to try to try to get through stuff today, try to keep it um, reasonable, all right? Pray for me, okay? So when we talk about culture, though, we've got to ask the question, what exactly is culture? How do you actually understand it? How do you define it? Now, it's notoriously difficult to define what culture is, and even harder to define what culture is actually about or what it's defined by. I've heard several definitions over the years. Uh, one definition being culture is what most people do most of the time. I think that's helpful. Or what most people think most of the time. There's this kind of idea that the majority of people, uh, the way that they think, the way that they set up values, the way that they structure their lives will tell us what that culture is like. That's one way to understand it. Another is uh, that a culture is actually defined most by what it forbids. So when you look at taboos, you look at what culture forbids, it'll tell you underlying what the values and the main kind of story of that culture is and how it understands purpose and identity and, and value. I think that's helpful because in our culture, if you look at what our culture currently forbids, our culture forbids any outside perspective that would feel like it is infringing on personal or private truth, right? And so we've looked at that over this, these last couple weeks, that any kind of like restriction from outside on personal expression, our culture forbids that. And that leads to cultures understanding what it means to be human, right? Are you with me so far? But it's important to realize that culture isn't something out there. This is where we have to be careful. And often I think historically, especially in the church, we've talked about culture like it's out there, like, like the world, right? It's like the world is out there as if we are not a part of it being shaped by it, and also shaping it, right? So culture is not just something out there. It's very important to understand that culture is everything that we are in, and it's shaping us, but also simultaneously being shaped by us at all times. The famous novelist David Foster Wallace uh, once gave a, a talk at a university campus, and he was talking about culture, and he shared the story of the idea that there's two old fish uh, sorry, one old fish and two young fish, and they swam by each other. And the older fish said to the two young fish, hey, fellas, how's the water today? And they swam by him, kind of confused, and looked at each other and went, what in the world is water? And I think that he was using that as an example to challenge us to understand that we're actually in culture more than we would give credit to. And we're also being influenced by it and being shaped by it more than maybe we think. So I want to try to answer the question today of what, are, what is the water we're in? What are we actually looking at? What are we actually thinking about? How should we be thinking practically about our cultural moment? Where do we find ourselves? And then maybe there's a few ways that we can respond. Uh, personally, I think in movies a lot. I don't know any other movie buffs. Like I, think in, like I feel like I want my life to be a movie. Amen right? But I think in movies a lot, and, and when I talk about culture, when I think about culture, there's this really iconic scene from The Wizard of Oz. Um, if you don't know what that is, and you're younger, to, then you know what that means. It's the original. It's not the remake. The original. Kids, sometimes there's classics. That doesn't matter how young or old you are, they're still classics, all right? Wizard of Oz is one of those, and there's this amazing iconic scene where Dorothy arrives in 
Um, where? In Oz, right? And it looks like this. And this is her face, her expression, where she first arrives in Oz. And she's got this expression, like there's such foreignness and strangeness. And she's holding Toto, right? And she goes, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And I feel like that's the expression on most of our faces now as we try to like walk through society and culture going like, I feel like something's changed. I feel like something drastic has happened socially and morally and ethically. I feel like there's been a shift and I, I don't know if I can necessarily put my finger on it, but I feel like we're not in Kansas anymore. And you're right to feel that because experts call this a post-Christian culture. You and I are now living in a post, meaning after, Christian cultural moment. Some people call it post-Christendom, like the reign and rule of a certain version of Christian morals has kind of gone now and we're living in a new moral day. And post-Christian culture is defined, really, by the fact that Christian values and beliefs are not the norm. We're not in Kansas anymore. Not only are they not the norm, but they're also not the favorite. Have you felt that yet? <laughs> not only are we not necessarily welcome at the table, we're actually like, culture's kind of like, well, can you build a table and sit over there? So we've moved from being the majority culture with our Christian values in the West to now being a minority. We've gone from being on the inside to being on the outside. We are now strangers to the wider cultural scripts and stories, and it happened really fast. After thousands of years of Western culture being shaped by Christian values, since the 60s to now, we have had a complete erosion of the pillars that have held culture up. It's happened really fast. So basically from the 4th century Rome till 1960, we had a culture that was influenced mainly by the Christian story. Is that making sense? But since the 60s, we've had an entirely different story that has taken the center of our culture. So why is that important for you and I, past that nerdiness, to understand? Well, being in a post-Christian culture means that we're not home anymore. Because the wider culture is shaped by beliefs and practices and stories that we don't hold. So we're no longer at the center. We're no longer the culture maker we can be influencers of culture, but we're not at home anymore. The Christian faith and values are not how somebody in our culture constructs their identity. It's not. And in fact, Christian beliefs and values aren't only seen as kind of archaic and outdated, right? But also oppressive at worst and hateful. And so things have changed drastically. And that's led to us needing to fight against certain caricatures of Christians, right? Anybody? Like, Ned Flanders, it's just like, hideley, totally neighbor Rooney. It's like, that's what, right? It's like, no, no, like, Christians are different than that. Like, we've, we've fought against kind of caricatures of what we believe and who we are, and we're going to continue to need to do that. So it's impacting you and I individually and personally, but it's also impacting the church. 90% of churches in North America are declining or growing slower than their communities. Think about that for a second. That means that if something doesn't change in the way that we understand culture and relate to it, guess what? Well, the church is just going to continue to disappear and not actually be an influential voice in the midst of our culture. In Canada, since the 1960s, we've seen church attendance go from 70%, 70, 
to 15% of Canadians. That's pretty wild. Only 21% of people actually have a positive view of the church. And in a recent poll, 50% of all people see the church as irrelevant, out of touch with culture, and say that the church is most known for what they're against than what they're actually for. So something's changed. Now, whether that's a fair or unfair caricature or understanding, we have to pause and pay attention to that, amen? We have to understand that there is a certain perception about Christians, Christianity, and the church that true or false, we need to hear it before we can start to respond to it. So this tectonic kind of plate shift under our feet of culture changing means that now we are the minority and the majority. We are strangers, not settlers. And it forces us, Springville, to reevaluate our Christian identity and our relationship to culture and to also reimagine our future in a post-Christian moment. And I'm actually hopeful. I'm actually optimistic about it. Do you know why? Because a post-Christian Canada means that it's also a pre-Christian Canada. Amen? That means that we now have opportunities to share the gospel with generations that have no familiarity whatsoever with the hope and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not the time to kind of lick our wounds and, and sulk as if we've lost some culture war, as if that was the point. But now is the time to reevaluate culture, reevaluate who we are as a people, and then look and say, how do we remain faithfully present in the midst of a culture that is wildly different than us? We're not going to be able to answer that entirely today. But the good news is that this is not a new experience. It's new to us in the West, but it's not new to the global South and the global East. If you know anything about kind of global Christianity, the West has been very unique in the sense that Western culture was shaped most by Christian values. But if you go global South, global East, that's never been the case. Any of you who come from any global South or global Eastern countries knows that that you've always had a sense of being exiles, strangers in your broader culture. And that was also the experience of the early church. I love how Peter opens his epistle in 1 Peter, and he says this, watch. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, starting with his identity, to those who are, and here's the key word, elect exiles. Underline that, double tap it, whatever you do. Of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I love how he starts here, because he doesn't start with tactics or methods, or a game plan for how we just need to survive. He doesn't start with methods or tactics for how we can be the loudest voice in culture and win the culture war. He doesn't start with tactics about how we can recapture the halls of power in our culture. He starts with what? Who they are. He reminds them of their identity. He reminds them that they are elect exiles, that they are chosen strangers, that they are resident aliens. Did you catch that? There is so much packed into that 
And what Peter is doing is he's reminding the church of whose they are regardless of where they are. So this is not a new experience. It's like, yes, you're strange, but you're chosen. Yes, you're on the outside, but, but you already are who I've said you are. Later in chapter two in 1 Peter, he calls them a chosen race of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's all these collective identity markers used there to stress their covenant identity and whose they are regardless of where they are. Now, the context here, Roman citizenship was a big deal in the ancient world. It was a very privileged status, and it was rare to have. Most people were not Roman citizens. And what he's doing here is he's taking that privileged status, which was for free individuals. You had to be free. And he's saying, this is who you are, but it's not Rome that tells you that, right? He reminds them of their identity, that they're elect exiles. And there's only two ways you could become a Roman citizen. The first is by birth, but both parents had to be Roman, so you couldn't be mixed. And secondly, you could be nationalized in. And when you got nationalized in, you got a new identity, but it had to come from the emperor directly. And all of that is wrapped up here in Peter saying, no, no, culture doesn't validate who you are or tell you who you are. The emperor doesn't either because King Jesus does. And if you notice, the Trinity is beautifully at work in that verse. That it's the Father, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, grace and peace be multiplied to you. That you belong to this God. That the gospel, first and foremost, is that you were far off. That you were an orphan. And that the Father saw you as a daughter and a son and brought you home. Don't forget who you are. That's what Peter's saying. In a sentence right here, Peter is saying, don't forget who you are because you are not home. You're not home yet. And he identifies the early Christians as exiles. Now this is important because this is why the biblical language of exile in the Old Testament has started to become a little bit more important for us to understand, right? Because listen, we haven't been exiles. We've kind of felt at home. But now when you actually go and understand what an exile is, you're like, wait, I feel a little bit more strange now. I feel like we're not quite at home. And that's exactly why Peter uses the word exile here. It's the first time, I think, in history that us in the West actually can identify with the experience of being in exile, of not being at home anymore, of feeling this strangeness. And not just learn how to survive as exiles, like just, well, hunker down and hopefully it gets better, but to actually thrive in the mix, in the midst of being in exile, right? Some Old Testament scholars would say that exile is the key motif of the entire Old Testament. That's like, it's like the thread all throughout. Like it's like the foundational story of the entire Old Testament is wandering and being exiled from a place that we need to find home. And it's threaded all throughout. We'll go very fast. Listen to this. It starts with the exile from Eden, from the garden, to the wanderings of Cain, to the call of Abraham to actually leave his home and become an exile because of faithfulness, for Jacob to go into exile to flee Esau, Joseph exiled as a slave in Egypt, Israel's national experience of slavery and exile in Egypt, and then the northern and southern kingdoms being under the constant threat of exile from enemies, to the conquest of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and finally the Romans. 
That's the Old Testament. And then King Jesus shows up. So the entire undercurrent of the entire Old Testament is not just that national Israel are exiles, but that there's something about this homesickness in the human heart. That whether you identify as religious or not, that there's something, there's a homesickness for a place we've never been that's embedded in the human heart. And God has put that there so that we would actually understand the strangeness and seek after him. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. My doctoral supervisor, Lee Beach, says it this way. The people of ancient Israel and early Christians were plunged into cultural situations where who they were and what they were called to be was at odds, drastically so, with where they found themselves. And that's just true of Scripture. And I think for the first time, it's true of us in North America and our experience here. And by calling the people back to their identity, notice that he's not like, calling all that nonsense. He's like, oh, culture, let's just take shot, as if a culture war is the thing. He reminds them of their identity regardless of where they are. And what Peter's doing by doing this, this is where the Old Testament's helpful, is that he's actually assuming the voice of a prophet. In the Old Testament, if you notice, the majority of the prophets that show up, right, they don't show up and like get in a trance and be like, mm, God will do something in the future, right? Prophets like kick doors in to king's palaces and say to Israel, Cut it out, or you're going to go end up in exile. And then there's other prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are in exile, and they're like, this is why you're in exile, right? You've forgotten what God has said. You've forgotten who God called you to be. You've forgotten your job. And Peter is assuming the voice of Old Testament prophets here and reminding the exiles of their identity. And he's saying, you're not home. Don't settle don't give up. Don't lose focus. Don't forget who you are. So, I don't know where you're feeling this personally. I know that we are collectively, and maybe we haven't even put language to how strange things feel right now. But for you, it might look like strangeness in your own personal life. It might look for, like strained relationships that weren't strained before. It might look like kind of an unsettledness, a restlessness, you might be battling all sorts of other personal things, health issues. You might be self-medicating and just leaning into escapism, trying to avoid that nagging feeling that we're not home. And I would say that it's actually embracing that feeling, not avoiding it or ignoring it, that we end up finding God reaching for us. And that's what Peter's doing here. This heart-level restlessness is a symptom of exile. It's a sign that we're not yet home. See, when we're in exile, it's easy to settle for immediate gratification as if that's the point. Read Daniel, right? Daniel's one of my faves. He's like, I'm not eating the king's meat, I'm not doing anything you're doing, but he's smack dab in the middle of it. He's in exile. But he's like, no, 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 I'm not gonna settle just to eat good food and hang out and stream the best shows and then die. There's more to life than that, amen. There's more for me. There's more power of God to be experienced. There's more reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit that we can live into and then go out in exile to a culture that has not tasted and seen that God is good. And that's what Peter's reminding them of. 
And notice that he roots it in verse two into the foreknowledge of God. No, it's, 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 it's hard because you're like, oh, foreknowledge, predestination, God. It's like, no, no, hold on. Foreknowledge is not just an intellectual idea that we kind of sit and like stroke our beards about, right? It's a posture of settledness because God's in control. That's what foreknowledge allows us to lean into, that we would actually live settled under the hand of God because there's nothing that's catching him off guard. So Peter says, hey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, by the sprinkling of his blood, may you have more grace and more peace. That's what we need in exile. We need more grace. We need more peace. We need to be reminded of who we are and whose we are so that we can be faithful regardless of where we are. Amen. That was two of you. Come on now. I'm preaching. God is in control. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He's not embarrassed. He's not looking going, I can't believe it. Can't believe North America ended up like this. (laughs) That's that's not his, his posture. But it does mean that if God's in control, we're not. So what Peter does is he shifts our gaze from the fading and failing objects of worship and immediate gratification as in just getting a decent 80 years and nice green grass here and then dying and then maybe going somewhere or nowhere is the point. And he draws their eyes away from that and says, no, those are fading, those fail. Those non-gods will not satisfy you because that homesickness in your heart will only be met when I bring you home. That's what's on offer. But God's in control. And we start from that posture, church. We start there. Not from outrage and freaking out. <laughs> like God is in control. We, get, we can lean into that. We can live faithfully present in the midst of a culture that is radically different and be a redeeming presence there. Now listen, I got three things, then we'll finish. But I want to answer the question of how are we to understand how to live as exiles then? Before we do that, I want to point out a couple ways that we've responded historically to cultural resistance, okay? And you got to place yourself in one of these categories, or maybe none, probably not, but one of them, okay? How have we tended to respond to cultural resistance in Western churches? Number one, we've become defensive against culture. Defensive against. So what we've done there is we've seen culture as the enemy, the world as a threat, as a pollutant, that as long as we don't let it in here, right, we'll be killing it, we'll be successful for Jesus. And then what ends up happening when we're defensive against culture is that we have the wrong target. So we seek to dominate and fight for the moral majority and become the loudest voice at the table. But what happens when we're defensive against culture is we can actually develop a blind spot for what culture is actually saying. Second response we've had is withdrawal from culture. So this is kind of like we go and build Christian ghettos and bunkers away from culture. We, we lean into escapism and we just hold on, right? And so we talk about the rapture or whatever future thing of like, if only we hold on, we'll get out of here. The world is going to hell in a handbasket anyway, baby. So let's get out of here, right? That's what happens when we withdraw from So we build a Christian subculture that really doesn't have any overlap at all. We build really high walls between kind of us and them. And then we otherize culture as if we're not supposed to be in it and influencing it. 
And what happens with that when we withdraw from it is we develop a blind spot for the Great Commission, right? We develop a blind spot for being salt and light and to go and actually be fruitful and multiply. That's our call. That's our job description. And then the third way we've tended to respond is compromise with culture. And I would argue that this is our biggest issue right now. Not defensive against, not withdrawal from, but compromise with. And when we, under, when we see that we've kind of seen compromise with as a tendency, what's happened is we've seen cultural acceptance as the goal and being relevant to culture. Which, by the way, Gen Z hates this. I don't know if you, Because their entire life, Disney has told them to be their authentic self. So the second they feel any in, inauthenticity at all, of like, oh, I think there's a bait and switch here. We're like, come to lunch with me. And you're eating lunch halfway through your burger. Do you know where you'd go if you died right now? Ah, I knew this was coming, right? Because authenticity has become the core value. But when we see, when we see all this compromise with culture, what ends up happening is we get squishy on things that actually matter. And we start to bend to cultural moment and nuance things into an oblivion. Have you ever had that conversation? Where it's like, hey, where do, you, where, do you, where do you believe on this? Where do you land on this? And then they just start like, well, in 1789, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, what? Like, I just asked you a question, you know? Like a, and then we end up getting so squishy that you can't even, like, there's nothing solid left about us, right? And that's happening all over the place. And when we compromise with culture, what blind spot do we develop? Well, we have developed a blind spot for what God actually says. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's not letting them get away from the fact that God has already spoken, that he's already created us, told us who we are. And we see this being echoed in Jeremiah 29. If you know Jeremiah 29, he's speaking to the exiles, right? Right? And here's what he says to them. He's like, you're in exile, I get it. Let, listen, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. And then go find spouses for your children so that may, they may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it for it's in its welfare that you will find your welfare. Did you see that? That regardless of where you've tended to land, whether you're defensive against culture or withdrawing from it or compromising with it, Jeremiah, the Lord just spoke through Jeremiah in exile, two exiles and said, be faithful and present. Don't just be present and unfaithful. And don't just be faithful and not present. Be faithful and present. Show up. Be faithful. Be in it. Be in culture, but not of it. Be qualitatively different and strange and weird, but be right in the middle of it. Did you see that? And secondly, redeem it. Be for people. Be about people. It's in the city, our community's welfare, goodness, shalom, and prosperity and peace that we'll find ours. That's radically different than maybe some of us have thought about this cultural experience of exile. Jesus echoes the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time. What else is new? But go check out Matthew 5 through 7 and watch what Jesus does there where he unpacks his vision for a countercultural people, right? 
Because he's like, no, no, I'm a different king. And my kingdom people are very different. And then he unpacks this countercultural vision of what it means to be followers of Jesus. And then he finishes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 8. He just has this really interesting line where he says, don't be like them. <laughs> and I think he's saying that to two different audiences. He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees who just sit around and twist their mustaches and have no care or love or concern for image bearers in their culture. But then also, don't just be like them. <laughs> be different. Be distinct from the world, yet influencers of it. So what does this look like? Three things, and we're done. Three things. Number one, it means a commitment to personal and communal holiness. Personal and communal holiness. If you notice, Peter calls them a holy nation, a priesthood. But usually when we hear holiness, we think like a rules list of like do and do not. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with those who do, right? Avoid secular movies and music, right? That's holiness. That's not what the Bible talks about with holiness. In Scripture, holiness is an identity that sets us apart from the wider culture. It's that we're actually set apart and distinct. There's a social distinction. There's a moral distinction. Now, are there moral things that change when we understand holiness? For sure, but it's not a checklist of moral things that make you holy. You and I don't become holy on our own. We're made holy, amen? And that's the point all throughout scripture, throughout the biblical scope of holiness, that holiness is not moral perfection. It's moral distinction, which means you're not gonna nail it all the time, but you're fighting towards it. You're fighting, you're swimming upstream against the cultural norms and values and morals. We don't become holy, right? We're made holy. And if you notice all throughout scripture, holiness, the whole point of holiness isn't so that we sit down, be holy, and go, hmm, tisk tisk, culture, not like us, right? But the purpose of holiness is mission. That God actually shows up and he, he takes Israel and he says, I've made you holy, so now go and be in light to the Gentiles. Go and be a light to all that don't know me. Go show them what it's like to know me and live with me because they're gonna see it and they're gonna want it. They're gonna wanna taste and see that you're good. That's holiness. I've heard holiness called engaged nonconformity. I like that. It's engaged nonconformity. It's not being disengaged, but it's being engaged, but also being nonconformists to some of the things that are happening, right? Engaged nonconformity. So in other words, if your views on sexuality marriage and romance, or your views on personhood and the body, or your views on abortion, or politics, or economic policies, or how you stream and consume digital media and spend and drink and eat is the exact same as the dominant culture we live in, guess what? They might not be Christian views and values at all. If I didn't just offend you with one of those categories, I tried. I tried to offend everyone. <laughs> we have set the bar far too low for the cost of following Jesus. That if only we live in suburbia or heterosexual and we want to get married and have kids, Christians. 
but we set the bar way too low for what it actually means to understand the cost of following Jesus and to go and die to ourself and experience the power of God and dependence upon the Spirit. You cannot become a follower of Jesus and barely know. <laughs> you can't just fit Jesus into how you're already living and it goes smoothly. So today, church, listen, holiness looks like fighting for purity and self-control and restraint in our decadent culture. It looks like honesty and humility in how we portray ourselves in person and online. It looks like pursuing proximity with strangers, people who think so differently than us, instead of settling for doing life with people exactly like us. It means prioritizing generosity over accumulation and materialism. It means a humble submission to one another instead of clamoring for attention, trying to get to the front of the line to see how much influence or how many followers and fans we can get behind us. And I think it looks like resisting the tribalism of our culture and living as peacemakers to fight for unity and nuance in complex things. I think that's what holiness looks like today. So hear me clearly. There is no power in conformity there is no power in withdrawal. There is no power in outrage, but there is power in faithful presence, amen? That's the first thing, number one. Number two, holiness looks like, sorry, I mean, being faithful looks like prioritizing and practicing radically ordinary hospitality. Now, when you hear the word hospitality, I don't know, for me, I just kind of think like smiling a lot and being able to like do baked goods and, <laughs> you know, Martha Stewart-esque, pre-jail Martha Stewart. Not, okay. If you don't, okay. <laughs> but when you hear hospitality, especially us suburbanites, don't think entertaining, right? So you're like, oh, I'm entertaining. Usually you entertain people that you like, <laughs> right? Right. It's like, well, I got to play these board games, drink this fermented beverage. I'm going to eat this food with me, but I'm entertaining because we're all the same. We just like each other. We kind of just jam, right? We just jive. That's not hospitality. Now, it can be. You can be hospitable to people that you like, so don't get me wrong. But hospitality, actually, the Greek word actually means a love of stranger. There has to be a level of strangeness and difference. There's a love of stranger, a love of enemy, a love of neighbor. And that's both inside the church to one another, but also outside it when you look at hospitality. John 13, probably the, the most detailed teaching that Jesus kind of unpacks this, but at the end, he says to his disciples, just as I have loved you, what? Go and love one another. But do you remember what he just did? He washed their feet, <laughs> right? So he's, he's like, no, no, like I've served you. I've, I've laid down power and control and I've come and I've actually empowered you with it. Now go and do likewise to one another. Meaning there's no one-upmanship. There's no like, bit of grace that somebody gets more than me inside the church, but that we all come walking with a limp as we follow Jesus, but that we get to love one another in that. But hospitality, when done well inside the church, explodes and goes outside the church, right? In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, the apostle Paul says, be ready to share not only the gospel, but also your lives. I think we've prioritized being right at the expense of doing good. 
And so we haven't actually practiced hospitality in a way that's going to lead to gospel witness. We need to invite people into our lives before we expect them to invite us into theirs. Amen? That's what hospitality does. That's what the table does. Now, it doesn't mean we stop inviting our post-Christian neighbors to stuff, but it might mean that we invite them to our porch and our sofa and our dinner table before we invite them to our Christian things. Are you with me on that? Because it's in those spaces where we actually have a freedom of speech at our dinner table, that we can talk, that we can get to know them, that we can love them, see them, hear them, and practice hospitality. That's the mission of the church, right? Is that we would love outsiders as if they're insiders so that one day they'll want to become insiders. And that's always the heart of God all throughout Scripture. Leviticus 19.34, treat the stranger who is among you as a native and love them as yourself. God is always after the outsider, but church starts here. Starts at the table. Starts with hospitality and practicing that and modeling that. On this note, Rodney Stark, who's one of the biggest Christian historians, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity where he just looked at the Roman world and he tried to identify what made Christians so bizarre. Listen to this. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities filled with, sorry, to cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. This right there is what the church looks like when focused. Not on how right we are, or a culture war that we might engage in, but how good our God is and how good we can go and show them. Henry Nouwen wrote that the job of Christians is to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become fellow human beings. Where are we creating spaces for people to simply be human? inviting them in, creating those spaces, inviting them in, and then showing them the God that made them human. That's number two. Number three, oh yeah, let's go. Number three, we need to be slower to speak and quicker to listen, says me. <laughs> Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, if one gives an answer before they hear, it is folly and shame. So hear me. If the church continues to try to drown out culture's voice on issues... Instead of listening to how the gospel needs to be heard, we will not be heard. You with me on that? Like it makes sense, right? Do you remember that crazy, ridiculous presidential debate a few years ago with Trump and Biden? And the entire thing was them just yelling over each other. And it just ended with Biden being like, would you shut up, man? <laughs> In a presidential debate, quote, would you shut up, man, end quote. But I do feel like if we're not careful and we don't practice listening for the questions that culture is actually asking, we'll continue just to talk past them and answer questions that no one's even asking anymore. But we got to listen. We got to do the hard work of listening. Because I think we think we know culture better than we do. We need to understand their questions. We need to understand the tensions. We need to understand what's going on in them as human beings before we're able to answer some of those things. Check out Acts 17 this week with the Apostle Paul showing up in Athens and the way that he kind of shares the gospel there. He, he quotes Epimenides, who's a mythical Greek poet. He doesn't even exist. Paul quotes someone who doesn't exist. 
to share the gospel. And then he also quotes Eretus, which was a Greek worship song to Zeus. He's quoting worship songs to pagan gods to create bridges to preach the gospel. That's wild. Now, and I'm not pretending any of us will be a wizard like the Apostle Paul, because he was the Apostle Paul. But it's amazing to see how in touch he is with the scripts of culture to actually draw from them and say, hey, I know why you think that. I know why you feel that. I know that why you're living like that, but let me show you something better. And I think that our culture isn't most concerned with understanding if Christianity's right. They're trying to understand, does Christianity work? Does it heal what they are actually feeling? The pain that they're actually living with dates, the anxiety and the unending pressures of living in our cultural moment. And we have the answer, church. But it's when we practice listening that we'll be heard, amen? Good, those are our three things. I wanna finish and leave you with the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, 37. And he says, he looks at his disciples and he says, the harvest is what? Plenty, but the workers are few. Church, the fields are ripe for harvest if we're ready to pull up our sleeves. The fields are ripe for harvest if we're ready to be prepared, get prepared, get equipped and trained to work in the field. Because if we know anything about this cultural moment, the future of the church is not in the barn, it's in the field, amen? But it takes us to sit with this and think deeply and thoughtfully about this because the if we build it, they will come is not true anymore. They most likely won't come. So we need to go. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like there's gonna be more opportunities for friendships, more opportunities for hospitality, more opportunities for discipleship, more opportunities for church planting, more opportunities for all of this. And like I said at the beginning, it might seem strange, but I'm actually very hopeful because our post-Christian Canada means that we're living in a pre-Christian Canada. So church, rather than signal a loss of a culture war or sulk or withdraw or compromise, this calls us to thoughtful engagement with our culture. It calls us to a missionary opportunity that we haven't had in generations. So it's vital to realize this is our future, that we can't go back to some naive golden age. We can't go and make Canada great again. Whatever, that, like whenever that was, right? Oh, it was leave it to beaver. That was the, it's like, what? That was weird. <laughs> Three of you are giggling. I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself today, I think, is what's happening. But it's vital to realize this is our future, church. Now is not the time to withdraw. It's not the time to compromise, but it's the time for faithful presence. It's the time to take Jesus at his word that no one who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God that we actually can move forward. So I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't know what it looks like for us exactly either, but it does mean that we can start to commit to holiness more seriously. It does mean that we can kill compromise in our life. It does mean that we need to identify the needs and the needy and practice hospitality and actually lift our eyes up and look for the orphans and widows. And it does mean that we need to practice listening well. Amen? Good, let me pray for us to that end. Father, we're so thankful that you are faithful. 
And it's our identity in you that reminds us of that, that you're good, that you're always after those who are farthest away from you, to bring them home because of your, your heart as our Father. And we're so thankful that for those of us in the room who've experienced this, that, that we know you, we've tasted and seen that you're good. But I also pray for those of us that have not yet experienced that, that spirit, you would work in their heart and their mind and you would bring them on this journey to explore and figure out who you are and taste that, and see that you're good. I pray for faithfulness for us as a church as well. That we would understand faithful presence as the call where mission actually happens. That you would change us first and foremost and that would just give us an explosion of joy to go outwards into our communities and our workplaces and our campuses and our streets and be faithful and present. I pray that you'd work that in us and through us that it would be done for your name and we pray all of this in the only name that matters, in the name of Jesus, amen.